Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, so, so if you've been following the the uh, the news lately, and I guess all of us have been, um, it, it seems like uh, states um, around around the United States, anyway, are starting to uh, open up, and um, in Israel as well, and uh, I, I guess around the world, and. Um, so, so increasingly, there seems to be a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel, just in terms of, in terms of um, the, the quarantine aspect of, of this, uh, perhaps ending uh, sooner rather than later. Um, no one has anything exact about it, um, an exact date or what it will look like, what the new normal, the new new normal will look like. Um, but anyway, it seems that this this stage that we've been in in for the last uh, month and a half or so uh, is coming to an end pretty soon. That that that's what it seems like. Um, there there was a video that's being passed around, and I'll, I'll try to get you the, the the link to it if anyone's interested. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's it's done by. Uh, uh, someone with an English accent, so I'm, I'm guessing it was done in England. Um, and uh, it's a bedtime story. And the little boy is saying to his father, uh, tell me the story about the virus again. You know, that's my favorite. And the idea is that, that this story takes place in the, in the future. And, and uh, you know, history is, is remembering this period that we're living through right now. And it's written sort of like as a as a children's book, um, just about how we had all kind of lost touch with nature. We had all become too busy. We had all become obsessed with our phones and screens. We had all become, you know, just kind of disconnected from from everything. And then then came the virus, and somehow nature uh, reawakened, and we discovered sort of like kind of like the basics and family connections and things like that. And, and, and um, in this, in this like video, they, they posit this era will be known as the great realization, which I, I thought was, it's the whole thing is, is very poetic. And they said it was the first of many subsequent realizations, which I sort of appreciated um, because it sort of takes the pressure off um, leaving this event uh, with uh Complete enlightenment, and that's that's kind of what I want to talk about today. Just where do we go from here? Um, given the fact that it seems like the writing is on the wall in terms of this stage, it being coming coming to a close pretty soon, anyway. And one of the things I don't know if you've seen, there's so many fascinating videos that are going around. One of them is all the wildlife that's showing up in different cities around the world like mountain lions and goats and things that just cutting to scenes all over the world with like wild animals, like walking down the street. And, um, you know, the air quality has been, you know, just remarkably restored. I, I saw a headline saying that, that, that earth can heal itself apparently much, much faster than, than anyone thought was possible. Um, 
So, so that's, that's interesting too. Um, all these like very special, amazing things happening. Of course, I, I don't want to be naive or, um, or insensitive because, you know, there are a lot of people who are just going through absolute hell right now. And, and, and that's, uh, that's a big part of the picture of what's going on right now as well. Um, but I tell you something, there, there are going to be love stories written about this year. I'm telling you right now, there are couples that are, are dreading the end of this quarantine because this, this special period between them is about to end. I'm telling you, these stories are going on as well right now. And, um, and it's going to be the stuff of novels and movies. Um, but, but the question is, the question is, how do we hang on to the good and to the positive and this sense of enlightenment, which is taking place among many, many people? How do you hang on to it moving forward? And this is really one of the great questions about just integrating spirituality and and just the human condition. How do you how do you maintain enlightenment? Um, I think that there's certainly a lot of pressure, you know, at least you know among people who who really want to see like a a, a lasting, very real effect of what everyone is going through right now. Everyone wants to come out of this feeling as though they're going to be re-entering a changed world. And I want to just create maybe a realistic context so that we can have realistic expectations. Because believe me, there are a lot of people who are going to run to do everything that they used to do. That there's a lot of pent-up desire and need to just return to the old ways and to wildly embrace what it is that they feel as though they've been missing. And, and that's, that's got to be factored in as well. That's, that's a very real part of it. But I want to just try to put what I've been talking about in context. And if everyone at home could just uh, mute their, uh, mute their, uh, their, their microphones, please. Um, so, so the thing is, is that you see in the Torah all the time that, that, that miracles would happen and then people would go back to idol worship. And, and so, so, so miracles don't really change people. This is kind of like the, the surprising, the surprising truth. You know, it's sort of like a, a like an, a, a cliche almost. That, that people who question the existence of God often say, if I were to see a miracle, then I would change. And, and yet the, the reality is, is that the Jewish people, like in the Torah, experience miracles all the time. And then it seems like the effect is not that lasting. And, and so... So how do you hold on? 
How do you hold on? This is the question. And I, I saw a, a um, presentation of this idea from Reb Tzadik in in what I thought was a very compelling way. Before I get to that, I, I just want to tell you, you know, lately, I don't know what's going on, but I've been experiencing like all these crazy, like, um, confluences. I, I don't want to say coincidences because that suggests somehow they're happening on their own. It's it's just Hashem just 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 manifesting in crazy ways. So I'll just give you something that happened last night, which is that um, last night was... Uh, was a time to say uh, Kiddush Levana, the, the sanctification of the moon, and I wanted to I wanted to review some of the halachas since I'm used to saying it in a group, and here I was saying it kind of just with my son. We were just not in a minion, so there's certain challenges like the Shalom Aleichem part. Normally, we say that to three different people. What do you do when you're on your own or when you're just uh, when when you're just with one other person? It was so sweet. I got a text from from a great friend. Uh, after Shabbos, it said Shalom Aleichem. Clearly, he had just done Kiddush Levana and, you know, was reaching out how to solve that particular issue. So I was looking through this little book, um, trying to review some of the halachas of, of saying Kiddush Levana, the sanctification of the moon. And uh, I actually didn't find the answer to my question, but I saw some interesting things. And and one of the interesting things was they, they were discussing in this book, um, why do we say... Uh, David Melech Yisrael Chayvik I am. Like, you know, David Melech Yisrael, King David, you know, he, he should live forever. His, his, uh, his, his rulings forever, which is, uh, something that oddly we say when we're talking about the sanctification of the moon. So, so just, uh, another request if, if people could, uh, put their, their uh, videos on on uh, on mute. That would be great. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think they're I don't think they're by their computer. Um, okay, we'll keep on going. So, so it says um, it says there. Um, if everyone could go on mute, that would be awesome. Let's see if I can uh, mute everyone. Uh, okay, I think we're good there. Okay, we can jump back in. <laughs> So, so it says, uh, what, what is the connection between this phrase, David Melech Yisrael Chayvik Ayam, and, and the sanctification of the moon, right? Which we say on Rosh Chodesh, by the way. We, I mean, not Rosh Chodesh proper, but, you know, it, it connects with Rosh Chodesh. So anyway, the gematria of that phrase, David Melech Yisrael Chayvik Ayam, is the same as the gematria of Rosh Chodesh. And it's the number 819, that's, that's what the book mentioned. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. 819, 819. And then my son, I said, I'm going to, I thought to myself, I'm going to look it up in my Gamatria book right now to see if there are any other numbers that correlate with 819, because it would be good to know what else correlates with David Melech Yisrael Chai 
And at that moment, my son walked in from the other room, not aware of this conversation that I've had in my head, not knowing that I just saw this in the book. And he walks into the room and he says these words, 819. And I was like, why did you just say that? He said, because Shabbos ends at 819. But can you imagine? I'm looking at this number, 819, a very odd number. It's not like 711, like something that's like a turn of phrase, right? Right? 819, and my son walks in that moment and says 819. It's crazy. It's crazy. I'll tell you a related story. When I was, when my first daughter was born, I was in the, I was in the, the birthing room. And right after she was born, one of the Filipino nurses started yelling, 613, 613, 613. And I remember thinking, am I losing my mind? <laughs> of course, there's 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, right? But what was she yelling out? She was yelling out her weight. She had just weighed her. <laughs> and she was 6 pounds, 13 ounces, right? So, anyway, I, I, I just because just we're on that subject, we'll, we'll get back to how to maintain this, this level of inspiration. But just, just to tell you a little bit more about my daughter, she then, a couple of days later, got her social security card, and the first three digits were 613. And then when I told that to my uncle, He, he contacted me the next day and he said, I played those numbers based on your story in the lottery and I won. <laughs> Isn't that funny? He said, but they didn't come out in the order 613. So I didn't win that much money, <laughs> but he won like 20 bucks or something. But it was just, just a, a, a great way to end that one. Um, boy. There, there are more nutty things that have been happening. I, there's this, uh, this, this person that moved onto our block that my, my son's been very intrigued with, like a real kind of like, I don't know, kind of like a very striking figure, you know, tattoos, gray beard, looks like a, a real kind of wild rebel artist type guy, right? So after, after months of him being on the block, but I never had a chance to connect with him at all, I, I went up to him yesterday and just, just we were taking a walk and I said hello to him. Anyway, his name is Yo-Yo, <laughs> okay? So uh, we had a nice talk and I, 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 went, into, I went, into my, uh, went into my house and um, a little while later, maybe a half an hour later, something like that, my niece who was asleep at the time had no idea that I had just met this guy walks into the room and says to me, yo, 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 yo. <laughs> I'm like, what? Crazy. I just met this guy, yo, yo. And then someone said, do you, do you ever say that to people? And she says, no, I just, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> so so I, I wrote an article about this, um, if, if you're interested in it. What, what to do with coincidences like this? 
You know, what do we do when coincidences happen in our lives? And without going through all the logic, I'll just skip to the end of it. Basically, it's an invitation to pray. Just the gates are open. God is just showing you that he's present in your life. And it's a, uh, it's just, just pray. Just use that opportunity to pray. If you, if you want to see that thought expressed out in more detail, it's on the website, Torah and iTunes. Um, dot com, the meaning of coincidences, it's called, you know, under the article section. Anyway, let's get back to Reb Sadaka Cohen. I want to tell you what he says, because perhaps the greatest miracle in the Torah, uh, in terms of just supernatural, um, is the splitting of the Red Sea. And there's a very interesting medrash, well, just so you understand the greatness of the splitting of the Red Sea, not, not only was it this great salvation that happened, but it says that everyone experienced very, very high levels of prophecy during that. Um, all the heavens opened up. It wasn't just the sea that opened up. All the heavens opened up. And it says that the person on the lowest spiritual level achieved prophecy higher than the prophet Yechezko, who had a vision of the heavens, which were, you know... It, just like one of the one of the highlights of the Jewish people was was his vision. So the whole Jewish people had that at the splitting of the Red Sea. But there's another element that I never really put together with that, that Reb Tzaddik brings, which is a medrash, which is that after we got to the other side of the Red Sea, that all of the treasures of Egypt, like like the 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 soldiers that had been drowned basically, they all were carrying treasures with them. I don't, I'm not sure why exactly, but the Medrash teaches that that all these, all this tremendous material wealth also came to the Jewish people after the splitting of the Red Sea. And so, so Reb Sadik says something very interesting because he wants to he wants to try to understand something, which is that after this miracle with water, after God shows this total mastery over water. I mean, the whole world, but in, in this instance, water, right? Um, we go thirsty. <laughs> that, that crazy? That crazy? That like the greatest miracle of water ever happens. And then all of a sudden, the Jewish people have nothing to drink. I mean, that's talk about going from feast to famine, right? That's, that's really striking. So he wants to make sense out of that. And the fact that the Talmud says that that wherever you see reference to water, it's really talking about Torah. And the fact that we didn't have water at the end meant we didn't have Torah at the end. So now, Rapsodic is going to put all these things together. The splitting of the sea, the material wealth that we got, the fact that we didn't have any water or Torah afterwards, Okay. Now, believe it or not, we're still talking about the quarantine right now, <laughs> but but you'll see something very, very interesting. So Reb Sadek, and this is in Tekanus HaShavan, toward the end, Reb Sadek says that what happened at the end of the splitting of the Red Sea is that we had spiritual and material wealth. Okay, that's the idea that the Medrash is bringing across. In other words, not only had we gotten to this extraordinarily high spiritual level, but we were also 
rich, like rich in the sense of dollars and cents at the same time. So how does that connect to the fact that we didn't have any Torah, right? Any drinking water, which is Torah. What's the connection? The connection is, is that we thought that we had reached the highest level that we could reach. I'm going to say that again, because that's the point. That's the point of all this. We thought that we had reached the highest level that we could reach. The reason why I'm telling you this is because we started off with, with a bit of a dilemma that people are having right now, which is this sense of, for a lot of us, this quarantine has been a sense of real growth spiritually and emotionally, connecting with other people, connecting with ourselves perhaps in a way that we haven't. And how do we maintain that? And what I'm telling you is, after the splitting of the sea, we thought that we reached the highest level, both spiritually and materially, that we can reach. And the answer is in the premise. The premise itself is false. In other words, what, what this suggests, this sort of quarantine mentality of how can we maintain this level of enlightenment, this idea that after the sea split, how can we maintain this level of material and spiritual riches? The idea of maintaining a level is in itself inherently false. It's flawed. Human beings, the nature of the human condition is that it's ever-changing. It doesn't stay constant. There has to be a recognition that we go up and down and up and down and up and down all the time. There has to be a recognition that you never reach the highest level because God himself is infinite, which means there's no end to the heights that a person can achieve. If you're already talking about maintaining a level, you have already inputted destruction and falsehood into your life. Because it's not about maintaining a level, it's about constant growth. Maintaining a level suggests I have reached the highest I can reach. That idea is inherently false. One of my favorite examples of this, Rabbi Wolfson, talks about emuna, belief, and, and the way that he compares it, and this perhaps will communicate what I've been trying to express a little bit more concretely. He says, he compares faith to going up to a person and asking them, did you um, eat breakfast today? And the person says, oh, no, 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 no. I ate breakfast yesterday. You see, the whole idea that I ate breakfast yesterday is an answer to, did you eat breakfast today, is ridiculous. <laughs> because it doesn't matter if you ate breakfast yesterday. Breakfast is a daily 
construct. It's only relevant in terms of whether you did it today or not. If someone asks you, did you eat breakfast? How is that like faith? What's the point? The point is, is that people think that faith, and I'm not saying anyone thinks this logically, but there's sort of this emotional understanding uh, of faith, that faith is something that you can acquire, that faith is a possession, that faith is like the sofa in your living room, that once you have it, you continue to have it. There is no level that once you have it, you continue to have. The whole idea is false. You only have what you continue to work on every single day and cultivate every single day and try to expand upon every single day. That's the only thing that you keep. It says that after the water, after the Red Sea split, we didn't have, we went thirsty for three days. Now, Reb Sadik says something very, very interesting. He says that, what was that three days? He says, you see, he, he calls upon another um, spiritual foundation that we have in Torah, which is if you don't learn Torah for one day, or let's put it another way, if you leave Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. I'll say that again, because that's a very important thing for everyone to know. If you leave Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. And that's how Reb Tzaddik calculates the three days that we went without water after the splitting of the Red Sea. That after we thought that we had reached, mistakenly, after we had thought we had reached the highest level you can reach, and then by inference, it was just about maintaining that level, not about growing past that level, which again is the beginning of the end, right? Because now I have the couch, I just have to make sure nothing happens to the couch, right? Because I own it, I possess it, which is not the case with these things at all. They left Torah for one day, and then it left them for two days. And that totals three days. And so that's why we encountered, at the end of those three days, we encountered this 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 reservoir of water called Mara, which means bitterness, it was bitter waters. Why? Because Hashem wanted to reacquaint us with the notion of challenge so that we could get back into the system of trying to grow and overcome things. When we get complacent in our lives, God reminds us that there's no limit to our growth and that we have an obligation to grow as human beings, as creatures, as servants of God. And so, so challenge helps us in that way. Very, inter- very interestingly, the, the Talmud says that the sages of the Gomorrah were able to um, grow the Jewish people spiritually more than the prophets were. 
So the prophets, that's, that's, that's surprising because really the sages of the Talmud were, were, were not doing miracles, whereas the prophets were doing miracles, splitting seas, bringing the dead back to life, you know, all sorts of things, right? I love that story. I think it's, I think it's Elisha, um, where the, 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 the woman uh, is a widow and she's very, very poor and, and the, her, the debt collectors are on her. And Elisha asks, do you have anything of value? And she's like, I have a little bit of oil. And she says, go and borrow all the pots of everyone, all the jars, pots of everyone in the neighborhood, and then bring them into your house and lock the door, right? Because it just has to happen without any eye seeing this. And take the oil and pour it into one of the jugs, and you'll see it's not going to stop pouring, right? Just it's going to be more oil and more oil, more oil. And in fact, that miracle happened till she ran out of pots and jugs and jars, and that was it. And then she was able to sell that, and she had a small fortune. But all sorts of miracles happen through the prophets. And yet it says that the sages of the Talmud were able to somehow transform the Jewish people more than the miracle-making prophets. Why is that? Why? And the answer again relates back to us. This is We're only talking about the quarantine right now, by the way. That's all we're talking about. Because in the Talmud, what you have to do is you have to think. It's not just this um, fabulous, spiritual, spontaneous experience that's taking place. When you sit in front of a page of Gomorrah, you sit and you listen to Torah, you have to think about it. You have to absorb it. You have to integrate it into your life. And the, the very act of thinking about it and, 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 you know, breaking your teeth over these concepts and why does this make any sense? You know, b- by the way, if you want to know what I'm doing with these talks or why I even give them or what, I'm not a rabbi, I'm, wh- why should I give these talks? What, what right do I have to, to address any of you or to talk about the Torah in any sort of way. I didn't go to yeshiva. I don't know anything, right? I mean, I try to learn. So, so what, is it that I'm, what is it that I'm telling you all the time, all this information? It's me trying to understand what it is that I'm learning. That, that's all these talks are. It's just me trying to understand what it is that I'm learning. And then when I try to figure out what it is, then I share it with you. But that's a, that, that is a transformative experience for all of us. And that's why the sages of the Gomorrah, who are not working in the idiom of the supernatural at all, were more transformative 
than the miracle-making prophets. So the idea that we have to absorb right now, let's just review and make sure that we're communicating, is that human beings are ever-changing. There is no level that belongs to you and that's yours. It's constantly being updated every single day. Now, let me tell you this on a very, very deep level. Because this information was new to me, and, um, and it kind of blew my mind a little bit. You know, we have the Kabbalistic model of creation. And basically, the idea is that <clears throat> Hashem wanted to create a realm where there was free choice. That's kind of like the whole foundation of the world. This material universe only exists so that there should be a context, a, a place where people can exercise free choice. Meaning to say that as the angels have a very, very high revelation of godliness, they don't have any free choice because the presence of God is so apparent in front of them. They don't see all of God, by the way. Only God sees all of God. But yet their, 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 their vision is, is quantumly higher than our vision. And as such, they can't do anything wrong because God's presence is so manifest in front of them at all times. But God wanted a realm where it wasn't just spiritual robots, so to speak. No, no disrespect to the angels. He wanted a realm where there were a level of creation that could do absolutely every single thing wrong. And yet saw something deeper about the truth of existence, realized what was going on, and overcame their desires to do something right. To attach themselves to the ultimate truth. That's why human beings are higher than angels. Right? It's not that we're perfect. We aren't perfect. We are not perfect. They are perfect. We are not perfect. But in our imperfection... We're able to rise higher than them because for them it's automatic and for us it's a struggle. And as Rabsadik says in another place, we are the only creature in all of the worlds that has this concept of struggle. And so the idea that you ex exert effort You know, I always like to quote the, the Chofetz Chaim because I just love this turn of phrase. He says that when a person wants to speak Lashon Hara, when a person wants to say something that's not, not appropriate, and by the way, it's, it's always good to review the, this, this, this idea about the laws of Lashon Hara, that it's not about saying a lie. You can say the truth and it's still Lashon Hara, if the words are hurtful to another person. Well, yeah, but you did go to jail for five years, right? 
I mean, you did, right? So I'm, did, I, did I say anything incorrect? Yeah, you said something massively incorrect. <laughs> I mean, there might be an, a, an appropriate time to bring up that information, right? But just to say it, doesn't matter if it's true. Um, anyway, the laws have to be studied. But the Chovetz Chaim says that if a person is about to speak Lashon Hara and stops themselves, that the angels gasp in envy. That's a that's a that's an awesome teaching, and it gives you it gives you a, a sense of what this realm of creation is. But I want to get back to the point, talking about how our levels, our spiritual levels are ever-changing, and that we don't own any of them. It's a, it's a daily thing. So Hashem created this realm. In English, I've seen it referred to as the vacated space, or the empty space. God, so to speak, made a, this, this area within himself where he couldn't be perceived. That's why it's called the vacated space or the empty space, right? And he shone a ray of light into this, into this space, this empty space. This process is known in Torah as tzimtzum. And now let's think about Einstein for a moment. Einstein talks about E equals MC squared, which is this correlation of how energy becomes mass, right? But if you think of that in a Torah way, and you substitute the word energy for light, light is energy, light also became condensed and compacted until it became the material universe. So this ray of light became the physical universe within this vacated space where there could become human beings who didn't perceive God like angels perceived God and therefore could go beyond themselves to attach themselves to something higher which was infinitely precious to God. Okay, so now let me tell you the point. Why am I telling you all this? Because what I had thought in, in just my lack of learning, understanding, was that the shining of this ray of light, it's called the Kav, K-A-V, by the way, that the shining of this light, and, and by the way, you know, the letter Yud which is like the highest letter, right? It's like the first letter of the Yud, K, Vav, K. It's the highest letter. What's so cool about the letter Yud? You ready for this? You want to see how spiritual the letter Yud is? Because it's it stands for the highest light. It's the only letter of the Olive Bays that floats. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It, does, it doesn't hit the bottom of the line. The only letter just kind of floats at the top. It's just so poetic and... Beautiful. But the letter Yud has a little tip at the very top of it. 
It's very cool. You know, normally speaking, we draw a Yud just like that. But if you actually look at the Torah way to write a Yud, there's a little point at the top of it. That point on top of the letter Yud is the Kav. That's the, that's the ray of light that Hashem shone into the universe. Okay? So again, we're ready for the point here. I thought this ray of light was a one-time thing. God shone this light. He put this blast of energy into the world. It got transformed into the material universe. Done, right? Done. What else do you need to know? But that's, 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 not, that's not what's going on. It all of a sudden hit me, like last week. And I was thinking about the Kav. I was thinking about that ray of light. And I was wondering, wait a second, that ray of light, is it ongoing? (laughs) Is it that that ray of light keeps on shining into the world? Because if that's the case, that would be so awesome. Because it shows you how dynamic creation is. How the world is being created and recreated at its root source on an ongoing basis every single second. So I asked Rabbi Freeman, who, you know, actually knows these things. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, it's an Eitz Chaim, right? The Eitz Chaim wrote down the, the ideas of that's Rabbi Chaim Vital. He wrote down the ideas of the, of the Ari. He says, yeah, it's an ongoing thing. Do you see how that connects to what we've been discussing up until now? How one's spiritual level is ever-changing? And Rabbi Freeman added that the nature of that light, how much light is being shown into the world, depends on how much Torah study we're doing and how many mitzvahs we're doing. So if you do more Torah and you do more mitzvahs, you literally are increasing the amount of light that's flowing into the world. Which is awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. The Baal Shem Tov talks about this idea that there are four types of people, right? There's the bad person who knows that he's bad, the bad person who thinks that he's good. <laughs> The good person who thinks that he's bad or the good person who thinks that he's good? Right? I heard this from Reb Shlomo. Who's the worst of those four groups? And the answer is, it's the good person who thinks that he's good because there's no hope for that person. Do you understand? The good person who thinks that he's good has basically disconnected 
themselves because they think that they've arrived. Do you understand that if you think that you've arrived, that's the greatest proof that you haven't arrived? And this is to our last breath on earth. It's like, okay, yeah, this is true until, I mean, you know, until between you and me, I've really arrived. <laughs> right? This is till our last breath, till the echad, to the dalid of echad, of our last moment on earth. Pirkei Avos talks about the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of Israel who was an old man and who just like, kind of went off the derech. Can you imagine? High priest of Israel, toward the end of his life, just lost it. It's till our last breath. So how do we do it and what are we doing? Well, first of all, what I'm trying to say is, that when we leave our houses and we go back to the workplace and things like this, or just go back outside or get back into our cars or, you know, whatever life is for you or for me, right? When we go back to it, we have to understand that that just like this period of our life right now and before the quarantine, in a real way, nothing has ever changed. Because who we are and what we are is ever-changing, and it never stopped being ever-changing before, during, or after. And if you understand that about yourself, then we can take the increased insights that we learned about ourselves during this period of time, and we can use them to grow even more. The nostalgia for this period has already started among certain people. That's what that video was that I told you. This 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 children's book about the the era of the virus where, you know, everyone got close with their family members and things like this. The, it hasn't ended yet, and the nostalgia for it has already started. But what I'm trying to tell you is that there's a great falsehood built into that because it posits that we've arrived at something right now and it's not ever-changing right now and it's not going to continue to be ever-changing afterwards and that it wasn't ever-changing before. That's the reality that all of us have to continue to live in until our last breath. That spiritual levels are not the sofa that you bought a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago that you have it. You don't have anything. None of us have anything. I want to tell you something from the Tamar Devora, one of my all-time favorite teachings. So, so basically... Getting back to this idea that there's new energy flowing into the world all of the time. 
Imagine a giant robot, right? I think, I didn't see the movie Pacific Rim, but I think they had something like this in, in Pacific Rim. Bless you. Bless you and go on mute. <laughs> um, so imagine a giant robot and then imagine where the head is. There's a set of controls and you're in the head working the levers of the controls. Okay. You're making it walk and move and everything like this. So the Demar, the Tamar Devara, he was around the time of the Ari, so he was not putting this in the visuals of robots, right? But he says like this, something amazing. He says that If you do something for another person, excuse me, if you do a chesed, a kindness for another person, what's happened is there was a flow of divine chesed in the world, but it didn't really have an outlet into the world. But when you exhibit that trait, when you give that tzedakah, when you, when you write that check or go online and click donate or whatever it is, what's happened is, is that that divine chesed that's coming into the world, that divine flow of kindness that's coming into the world, you allowed it to enter into the world. It's like you hit the lever which allowed kindness to come into the world by doing kindness. Let me give you another version of it. Imagine you want to yell at someone. You want to get really angry at someone, right? But you don't. That means that there was anger coming into the world, this divine flow of anger coming into the world, but you you hit the lever, the off lever, you didn't allow it to flow into the world because you are the gatekeeper of these divine energies. That's an amazing, empowering thought to think that all these flows of energies of different types are coming into the world and you're at the control section deciding which energies are permitted to get into the world and which aren't. Okay, you don't have the, the global control switch over everyone, but you have it in your own life and the people around you. It's a very, very amazing understanding of what a human being is in our relationship with God. I saw, I'm just telling you just an observation that I had. I saw an example of this the in the Torah. The very first mention of, of um, the Yudke Vavke, God's holiest name, right, is surprisingly um, not in the account of the first seven days of creation. What you have there is, is, is the name Elohim mentioned during the first seven days of creation. Elohim is sort of synonymous with, with nature. And so what God is doing is he's sculpting nature, and also creating a set of 
infrastructure through which the divine can flow into this world. You know, it's almost like a a plumbing system, if you will. Like the example that I always like to give, and this is based on the Meore Nayim, the Chernobyl Rebbe, is imagine someone wants a drink of water and you spray a high-power industrial fire hose in their face, right? And knocks them to the sidewalk. Like, you may have thought you did something very nice. They wanted a little water. I gave them so much water, <laughs> but you blew them away. They did. They can't hold on to any of that. It was not only was it useless for them; it was actually destructive for them. If God wants to create from His infinity something finite, if He fully shines all of His light on it, it obliterates it the moment it's created. So there has to be this step-down system that's created that can channel the light in a way where there could be a vessel that can actually hold this light. So God creates the physical universe. He creates nature during the seven days. That's why the name Elohim is used during the seven days. And then, amazingly, the very first verse, the very first verse after the seven days of creation, once this infrastructure or this plumbing system, if you will, has been created, you see the first appearance of the name Yudke Vavke. Because now there's this step-down system that's in place where the infinite light can be filtered and come down into this world in a way that won't obliterate this world. Okay. Now I can tell you the point. That's just something you should know anyway. But here's the point. I find it fascinating that I think it's two words after this word, the the first Yudke Vavke, I think it's like two words after this word, Behibaram. Behibaram is like one of these like awesome words in the Torah, one of the best words in the whole Torah, just in terms of the numbers of like far out teachings on it. Okay. It's got a small hay in it and it's, it's great. Anyway, the, the Zohar says that if you rearrange the le- letters of Behibaram, it spells Be-Avraham. So here you see Avraham Avinu's first appearance in the Torah right after the seven days of creation, which is in itself remarkable. And the basic teaching is that the world was created for a tzaddik like Avraham Avinu. But I'm making a further point, okay? Which is that, isn't it interesting that the first mention of the Yudke Vavke happens after this mention of Avraham Avinu? And what I'm trying to connect this to is what we just learned from the, the Tamar Devara about how all of us are at the control center and that we have the ability to filter all of these divine energies through us. In other words, when we do kindness, when we do kindness, we're hitting a lever that's bringing down kindness into the world. It flows through us. We're the last gate, so to speak. Just like the word Behibaram happens, and then you have Yudke Vavke, just like you have Avraham Avinu, and then you have Yudke Vavke, 
In other words, it's not just the seven days of creation and the material universe that the yud Vavke has to filter through to get through the world. It has to get through the human being. That's the last stopping point is the human being. When we do kindness, we hit a lever and kindness comes into the world. When we start yelling at people, right? We're hitting a lever and anger, divine anger is coming into the world. If we want to get angry, but then we hold on to it, we hold on to it. Then we stop anger from coming down into the world. But that ultimately were the last gate before these energies manifest. And again, to connect it to what we've been saying up until now, and, and we'll just wrap it up now. You can't, you can't leave the control center. The nature of the world, the nature of a human being is such that there is no automatic pilot. There is no algorithm. It doesn't exist. The Kotzkarebi, I heard in his name, said, I'd rather be with a person who didn't daven today than to be with a person who davened today just because he davened yesterday. Did you hear that? I'd rather be with a person who didn't daven today than to be with a person who davened today just because he davened yesterday. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov famously used to play chess with these people who were not religious whatsoever. And um, when he was nifter, when he left the world, they, they, they all started crying. And, and like his, Rabbi Nachman's Hasidim, who understood like the, 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 the angelic brilliance of this Rebbe and understood that they, they had no appreciation of really of the depths of his thinking. Like they didn't understand why, is, why are they so sad? We've lost this master teacher. Why, why are they so sad? And they said, we were so close to doing tshuva. <laughs> we were so close. Those were people who were working on themselves. Maybe, I don't know what happened with those people. Whether they built on the inspiration, or they, they, they built on his loss in their life. I don't know. But... I think Rabbi Nachman really sensed that those people were working on themselves. So, so let's um, let's be real. Let's not fall prey to nostalgia. Let's not create false expectations for each other and for the world, and for who we think we should be after this event in our lives. But let's be real and understand that the game is on every single moment. And that's never going to change to our last breath. And that if you want to live in reality, we have to embrace this point. 
Thank you. What follows now are some questions. I'll, I'll tell you one of my, my favorite stories. This, this happened. Um, I love this story. You know, there's so many paradigms. Um, by the way, I, a while back, I, I kind of came up with this, this thing that, that I really like, which is, I, I call it um, kaleidoscopes and gyroscopes. Right, that everything is about kaleidoscopes and gyroscopes. Right. So, what what do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? So, by when you look into a kaleidoscope, you you turn it around, and the image keeps on changing, but you stand still. Right. But the image keeps on changing, and so to speak, we we so to speak are standing still, and God keeps on turning the picture around us. Now we're at home. Now we're at work. Now we're in our car. Now we're on the bus. Now we're with a friend. And he wants to see. He keeps on changing the scenery around us. God wants to see, how are you going to act in this situation? And how are you going to act in that situation? Right? Now, meanwhile, while that kaleidoscopic dynamic is going on, we have to be gyroscopes. (laughs) Okay, what is a gyroscope? A gyroscope maintains its balance in every single situation. Okay? So it doesn't get thrown. You can tilt the table, but then the gyroscope writes itself, right? Gyroscopes are amazing. So, so, so there are many paradigms in the Torah explaining our relationship with God. There's king and subject. There is parent and child. Believe, believe it or not, there's even older sister, right? That, that paradigm is in, in, there's mother, right? There's, there's what Rabbi Akiva calls the Holy of Holies, lovers, right? This idea that we're attaching to ourselves to God in this great love affair. So as God kaleidoscopically is changing our circumstances, we have to be gyroscopes trying to figure out what relationship is the new situation calling upon us to enact in our life. Is God asserting himself as king right now? Is God asserting himself as lover right now? Like, what is the moment for me to be the ideal partner, for me to channel my appropriate kind of um, role in the relationship that God is manifesting right now? So, So one of the unbelievable things that it says in Tanakh is, this is wild. I mean, all these things are wild, but, but is, is twins. The Torah likens us to God as twins, believe it or not. Now, you, if you think about that, that's very extraordinary because how can I be God's twin? Because come on, God is God and I'm nothing. So where is the where is the point of connection, right? Twins are the, the whole idea of twins is you can't tell the two apart. But now listen to how deep this is. A religious person, right? This is why it's so important that that we um, conduct ourselves in, in 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 a way that's pleasing to to other people, and that and that we that 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 we're good people because the world is really myopic. And what I mean by that is 
The world looks at a religious person who does something wrong and they say, I don't believe in God. If that's a religious person, I want nothing to do with God. Now think about the logic behind that for a moment. That means that they have completely confused you and God. <laughs> instead of saying, instead of saying they can't tell you apart because you're twins. Right? Do, do you understand? Or let's look at it the positive way. Oh, you that guy, he, he's a religious guy. I mean, praise God. You know, you know, a guy like that makes me, you know, want to be religious or whatever it is. Want, want to be closer to God. Because the way he just conducts himself or the way she conducts herself. Again, do you understand how this dynamic of twins is actually very, very real? In such a surprising way. Because people confuse our actions with God's actions. But now, based on what we've been learning today, you can hear something even deeper, which is that if you are at the control section, if by getting angry, what you've done is channel God's anger into the world, or if by doing something beautiful, what you've done is channel God's beauty into the world, if you think that the word Behibaram, which the Zohar says is Ba'avraham, directly precedes the first Yudke Vavke of the whole Torah, that the last gate that God enters through before entering through the world is us, then this concept of twins actually makes perfect sense. So it's a, it's a, it's a, big, it's a big thing for us to understand, and it's a fantastic opportunity, because can you imagine... Each one of us has the opportunity to give God a good name. <laughs> like God like created like everything, everything. And you get to give God a good name? What an opportunity. And in the movie it's actually twins who operate. They're only twins can operate these gigantic robots. Oh, is that right? That's crazy. Like yeah. Hemisphere to them. That's really one something. One has to have like the mathematical brain, and one has to have kind of like intuitive brain. And but the reason it came up was because Lexi was telling me about this um, this story about how there's this giant sea monster that's like living underneath the world in the ocean, and it it wants to find its share, but it never. On this, sir, in the time of Mashiach, and uh, basically, what I guess what my question is to go back to something you said earlier at the beginning of this whole quarantine, um, and to kind of underscore the point that you're making today is like it's so easy to feel connected to God when we have this really like there was this. It's insensitive to call it excitement, but there was like this like fervor to the quarantine that like really made you feel like almost sort of God, you know, mentioned someone said like, if this isn't Mashiach, I'm out. And mm -hmm. I guess what I'm wondering, what well, my question to bring it all back is like, how do we, how do we stay, you know, in this place of holiness as we go back to like regular life? And we're not like, we're not like, 
living in this like end times kind of moment? Well, first of all, we don't we don't know like we don't know what God has in 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 store, and and the idea is that God can bring Mashiach at any moment, so He doesn't need a virus to bring the to bring it. It, it could happen any day at any moment at any time. That that's always true. That's always true. That never stops being true. That's why I always get nervous when people start referencing like, oh, this political event is just like in the book of whatever. And it's just like the end of days. Like, God doesn't need a headline from the New York Times to bring Mashiach, right? He can do it at any time he wants any day. So so the idea, there's this implication that, Oh, because the lion is compared to the bear who's having a wrestling match with the whoever. I mean, I, I don't like it. <laughs> it's like, it suggests that now that the lion is wrestling with the bear, he can, God can do it. But before he couldn't do it. And afterwards he can't do it. He can do it at any time that he wants to do it. <laughs> so I think that that's, that's an important way to go through life is or necessary way to go through life is to to understand that nothing is difficult for god so so you know it would be it wouldn't have been great when we opened up the door seder night for eliyahu that we all heard the blast of mashiach that would have been some fancy footwork right that would have been some nice timing um, does that mean that it can happen before I finish the sentence? No. So, so I, I would, I would caution against any level of disappointment because that suggests there was a time and the time passed, or that suggests that there was a time when God could have done it but now God can't do it, which is all incorrect. God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants to, especially regarding bringing Mashiach. And that never changes, ever. It seems like sometimes the world is more positioned for it, but that's nothing to God. God can do it whenever he wants. So so that's that's just important for us to understand. So that's number one. Number two... How do we maintain this level? Well, that, that's what I hope to address um, in, in today's talk anyway, but maybe I didn't communicate um, well. What, what I mean to say is that, um, is, that, is that we have to stay active participants in our own relationship with God on an ongoing level before, during, and after that that's always the ultimate truth and that that never changes. And and that even though we're leaving, we're starting to leave a particular era right now, it's true now, it was true before the era started, and it's going to be true after the era started. Meaning to say, we can't be like the, like the Jews after the Red Sea split, after we had all the spiritual wealth and all the material wealth, to think we've arrived, right? We can't think that about ourselves right now. If there's something that we treasure about this period right now, and 
there are a lot of people who this period in their life right now is the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the bottom, and they're praying for it to be over. So we have to be constantly mindful that if, if, if any of us are having a positive experience, there are a lot of people having a horrible experience right now. But, but that being said, and God should bless them and save them and heal them and, and all the rest. But, but, but for any of us who are experiencing something positive right now, we have to figure out what is it that's giving me joy right now? What is it that I feel as though I'm doing right right now? And to not, to not experience it like the miracle of a prophet, but to experience it like the sage of the Talmud, where we understand what's going on, where we integrate what's going on, where we break it down and we absorb it. And then we can continue afterwards and we can build on it because we've owned what's going on. Instead of it being this sort of like very experiential kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, experience is great. I, I love experiential things. It's fantastic. But a person is ultimately not living a Torah life if they're not integrating and breaking down and being analytical about what is being transacted in an experiential moment. That's how you hold on to it. And that's what we have to do. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.